Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtar Shahadi. Each week, I dive into deep and intimate conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique perspectives about the most interesting topics related to the human condition. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Adam Foss. Adam has dedicated his life to criminal justice reform and reinventing the role of the criminal prosecutor in order to end mass incarceration. In 2016, Adam delivered a powerful TED Talk that shed light on the true power of a prosecutor to change the fate of someone's life by focusing on the person on trial with a sense of compassion, rather than seeing them as a win or loss to add to a prosecutor's record. Many of the people that Adam prosecutes look just like him, but were born and raised in very different circumstances. A quick backstory about Adam. He was born in the Caribbean and adopted by a white couple from Massachusetts. His father was a Marine and a police officer. Therefore, Adam grew up with a deep respect and love for police officers, while also living a life as an African-American man in a small town in rural Massachusetts. Through his experiences and his own life story, Adam has learned that deep empathy is needed in order to have a productive conversation about criminal justice reform. Adam shares how Americans have been deprived of the whole truth as it pertains to the systematic racism and criminal justice system. And he thinks we have an opportunity now to reckon with this false story and unlearn it in order to reform so we can all heal together. We hope this conversation brings clarity around questions you may have about the failings of the criminal justice system, mass incarceration, and what you can do to help push the needle forward on racial justice and equality. As always, if you enjoyed this conversation, please share it far and wide and kindly leave a review. So without further ado, it's my pleasure to bring you Adam Foss. Adam Foss, welcome to the podcast. How are you today, sir? Thank you, my friend. I'm doing well. How are you? Well, in the wake of two crises that are happening here now in the United States with COVID-19 and Black Lives Matter, I could be better, but I'm doing all right. I try to stay positive. I think the best way to start this conversation is by asking, how do you describe what you do? The work that I focus on is trying to improve uh, the profession that I dedicated my life to, which is prosecution of our citizens. Um, and I say that with all of the gravity and weight that I understand is built into those words um, as a prosecutor um, in, the, in the sort of like buildup of mass incarceration. Um, and certainly when mass incarceration came into the lexicon, I was a, a frontline worker who saw it happening and uh, decided that I wanted to do something about it and have dedicated my life to um, making those improvements. Yeah, that's great. Adam, I've been following your work for a number of years. You have a fascinating background of being born in the Caribbean, being brought to Columbia, and then being adopted by a white couple from Massachusetts where you were raised. And it's interesting to note that your father was a police officer, and now you're a prosecutor trying to end mass incarceration. So I'd like to get right into your work. What does it feel like to be able to hold the fate of the person that's on trial. How does that feel for you as an individual? Because that happens every single time. So how do you, how do you feel and cope with all that? Uh, it is a great question. It is really the thrust of my work um, because at no time was I ever really ever allowed to process that that was what was happening. Um, I was conditioned in law school to believe that if I was getting this job, it meant that I was going to do the right thing. I was told that my judgment, making it through law school, qualified me to make decisions about other people's lives. And so there wasn't really like a, a check on that. It was like, oh, you graduated, you passed the bar, you are now somehow gifted 
with these skills. Um, and then the other more sinister side of it is you used a word that you're holding the life of another person. It is difficult for me because of the way that our criminal justice system is structured and because of the way that we are educated in our law schools to see the other person on the other side as a person. We start off very early on, and I've already done it in my description of what the process looks like by labeling them as something other than their name. And in doing so, I've already taken one step towards dehumanizing that person. And then I layer on top of that all of the things like this adversarial system. So now not only do I not see you as another person, but you're on the other side, you're the enemy. I don't get any opportunity. In fact, I'm precluded in many places from actually speaking with you. And so my getting to know you is through a person that, again, I'm conditioned to believe is my enemy or my adversary. Uh, you are a case number. And as I build the case against you, I'm building it against an act. You are a murder. You are a robbery. You are a burglary. You are not Adam Foss. You are the act that you committed. And that's how I view my case. And what I'm seeking is not improvement from this person. I'm seeking a conviction. I'm seeking punishment. I'm seeking what we call accountability. And so for both of those reasons, the issue that I see and the thing that caused mass incarceration is that we don't actually take a moment to realize that every decision that I make, regardless of how important me or my institution believes to be, is going to have an impact on another human being's life. That's absolutely unbelievable. And, and I say this to you because you know, I work in this space of better understanding human dynamics and understanding individuals for the people that they are. And, you know, a major milestone of maturity is understanding that the actions that we take have implications on another person's life in such a way where we cannot even begin to imagine the things that they have to deal with based on the decisions that we make. And so how do you find a sense of humanity for the people that are on trial? How do you do it? My second year of law school, coming out of that internship, I got a job with a defense attorney in Boston who was one of the best. And as a result, she had these really high profile or, or high intensity cases, basically murder and federal level drug trafficking cases. And so on like the first day of work, she said, uh, I need you to go over to the jail and speak to one of our clients who I had known from just a little bit of like looking through the file is someone who had taken a life. Uh, this was not a case of innocence. This was a, a, a case where he was factually guilty of the murder and there was just some argument around um, self-defense and justification. And I remember the feeling when she asked me to go and do this and I was like, you want me to do what? You want me to go, you want me to go meet with a murderer? I, I don't know. And, you know, it's my first week at work. So I put on my suit and went over to the jail and I remember feeling all of the things uh, about this person because he had taken another life. And I often tell the story that he was the first person that I had met that had taken another person's life. And I, and I, I framed the story that way many, many times. And I remember the moment that he came into the room, uh, which was this tiny little awful closet at the jail that they used to give people time to speak with their attorneys. And I remember my first moment meeting this person and thinking to myself like, oh, you're a, you're a child. Uh, this person was 19 years old and I was only, you know, 26, but still could see like you're a teenager. I was a substitute teacher and like you were, you were a kid in my class, not one-to-one, -one, but reminded me of kids in my class. 
And I assumed that all we were going to do was like talk about ways to beat the case. And all he really wanted to talk about was like himself and his life. And he sort of told me the story of his life, all the, all the things that had happened to him around being a, a high prospect football player in high school. And I was like, oh yeah, you know, like I, I wasn't high prospect at all, but I remember football being like such an important part of my life. And he uh, was a kid who was living in poverty and he had the, the ambition and the talent to go to college by playing football. And he saw that as an opportunity to pull his family out of poverty. And um, unfortunately in his junior year of high school, he was injured severely. And with that ticket, uh, fluttering in the way in the wind, he started desperately seeking medical advice to get him back on the field. And he finally found a doctor that prescribed him a wonder drug at the time uh, that uh, the doctor promised him would get him back on the football field. And it was called Oxycontin. And shortly after he started using Oxycontin to rehab his football injury, uh, football became less of a priority and Oxycontin was the center of his world. And he spiraled into all of the realms of addiction, including starting to steal from his family, uh, from his little sister, uh, from his neighbors, and robbing people in the street, and eventually uh, led him to a hotel room where he was involved in the setup of a drug dealer to rob him of drugs and money. And I remember thinking to myself in that moment, like, up until the point where you put a gun in your pants and you went to this hotel room, like, this resonates deeply with me, and I, I wish I was someone that could have known you and, and, and gotten you help. Like, this is ridiculous. Like, we didn't... We should have known this was coming. That and many other experiences really started my journey towards like having deep and open empathy for most people that I came into contact with the criminal justice system with. Because of the name of your podcast, I think it's interesting to mention that in retrospect as I, I continued to, to sort of like anchor my, my transformation in life around that story, I changed the narrative because I realized that this person wasn't the first person that I'd ever met who had taken a life. In fact, my family was full of men who had taken the lives of other people. But because they were in green uniforms in another country, I celebrated them and looked at them as heroes. And I am not uh, in this moment comparing what this young man did to the brave service of the men and women that are in the armed forces. But for me, it was sort of just like an aha moment around like, what is violence? What is murder? Why am I conditioned to be afraid of this person? When, you know, an, an objective set of facts looking at what my father did in Vietnam or my uncle did in Korea could be characterized as the same thing, just depends on whose eyes you're looking through. Um, and it really, like, allowed me to make this radical transformation into deep, deep empathy, particularly working with young people who are involved in, in gang crime. That's wonderful, Adam. I really appreciate that backstory. So I'm kind of curious to know, since you brought up your father and your family, how do you think being adopted and being born in the Caribbean and coming through Colombia to the United States, how do you think that better informed your notion of having empathy for others? It's a great question, and it's one that I am currently really mired in because, again, sort of like this division has arisen over this like acute instance of police brutality in Minneapolis, and a moment occurred where it felt like we were on the path towards progress. And as, as the days have gone on, you've seen this division between people who support cops and people who support black lives. And as a person who is a black life, but grew up in a place where there were none, where at nighttime I would w watch my dad put on a blue uniform and go out and feel that anxiety as a little kid that, you know, maybe my dad's not coming home tonight. And I lived in like podunk nowhere. 
Uh, and so I cannot even come close to empathizing with, with what young people feel when they're watching their, their moms and dads going to, to work in, in cities, particularly in a, a time of conflict. I think that what that has done for me in my life now has created the opportunity to speak a variety of languages. And, you know, it's interesting to hear about your pedigree and what you ended up doing because you likely carried with you um, not just your translator skills, but also a way to make communication happen that is nonverbal. So that is the positive side of it. The negative side of it, uh, and, and I think it bears mentioning because it also is part of my transformation journey, is I am now realizing how pervasive systemic and institutional racism, implicit and explicit biases were in my upbringing from people that I loved, from people that I saw as my friends, from people who were my teachers. And revisiting all of these moments in my life through that lens is explained a lot, but also, you know, it's created a sadness in a way that I hope that in this moment I can help parents not put their children through the same thing. And, I, and that is not a slight on my parents. My parents did the best that they could with the tools that they had. Um, what I'm suggesting is that we have to do a better job of teaching people how to talk to their children about race, about racism, about anti-racism, about all of the isms. And I'm really, really hoping that in this moment, uh, for the people who are looking for something to do, that the, the thing that they do is turn internally and give back to their children. Yeah, I think your story is fascinating in the sense that, Adam, like you are a, a person of color, you're male, you were adopted by white parents, one of your parents was a police officer, and now you're a prosecutor for people, mostly men of color, that are, gosh, going to jail. And so how do you then find yourself and describe the work that you do in the sense that like, do you in many ways see yourself as the door sill between one world and the other? Do you find yourself being that meeting point where you're able to translate the story of each to the other? Yes. And I think that because of my experiences, I have developed deep empathy, not for the people who have just done the worst thing in the criminal justice system, but also for the people who are intentionally, but more importantly, unintentionally causing harm to another group of people who I love, who are black and brown people in this country, who are marginalized people in this country. And approaching this conversation from one of radical empathy and understanding that the expression of your racism, implicit or implicit, is not because I think that you are a bad or hateful person. In fact, I think you are a good human being until you prove me otherwise. It is because you grew up in the United States of America where we were all fed a story. Uh, and none of us were given the tools, none of us were given the dignity and the respect to be given the whole truth and to make of it what we wanted to we were in the sort of proliferation and sustainability of structures and supremacy that was the foundation of this country. We were fed a bunch of information to support that when really um, we were all deprived of a, a truth that I think would make us look like a very different country right now. No, I think that's right. Now, help us understand just in terms of numbers, like of the number of people that go to prison, how many of them are colored, black, brown, and then help us understand, you know, it's an 80 from what I understand, an $80 billion industry 
and it's privatized. How does that play into this this whole notion of capitalism? Is that able to be reformed? Kind of will help us understand what's going on there. Sure. So the latest statistics are African Americans make up roughly 13 or 14 percent of the United States population, depending on who you ask, and generally make up close to 50 percent of the carceral population. So we're talking about people who are held on pretrial detention, people who are in state prison. Uh, people who are in jails, people in juvenile detention facilities, immigration detention centers, probation and parole. Um, and so right there, you ha- like optically, you have to ask yourself when you see that stat, either you believe that somehow I was born with a genetic deficiency that makes me more likely to commit crime or there's something else going on. And that's where I try to steer people is like, all right, let's visit what else is going on. So you have the effect of, of deep racial disparities at every point in the criminal justice system, which drive distrust away from the system, which is problematic because the places that are most policed and theoretically the most quote-unquote crime-ridden are the places that distrust the system the most. And so we're already cannibalizing ourselves. Layered on top of that is the fact that we're actually not very good at doing what we say we do. 51% of victims don't even pick up the phone when they're harmed in their homes. And there's lots of reasons for that, but as a system that demands accountability of people, I think that we have to be accountable as a system to say that we can improve that, that part of that is us. And then layered on top of that uh, is the fact that we're not terribly a safe place to live. We see crime rates dropping, but it's not because we are policing and prosecuting and locking people up for longer. It's because we are finally understanding that safety has very little to do with the criminal justice system and has a lot to do with investing in other areas like education, housing, um, employment, and healthcare. And then layer on top of that that it costs a fortune. So $80 billion was the price tag I put on it during my TED Talk, but that does not contemplate the lost revenue, the cost of the criminal justice system that results from people's reliance on social systems when they get out, uh, the homelessness population, the mental health population, the creation of and the, and the cyclical violence in neighborhoods costs a ton of money and so the frustration i have is looking at all of the that evidence lawyers who go to work in this place every day still say that this is a good thing and we're doing a good job how should people kind of think about what's going on now in terms of black lives matter in the united states help us understand how people should be thinking about it and then how people are missing the point? What are things that are people thinking that they shouldn't be thinking about? Give us some clarity when it comes to this topic right now in this moment. I think that step one is just, again, welcoming and creating space where we can have those vulnerable conversations about being attacked or blamed and and approach it from a, a place of understanding. Number two, understand that this is long and arduous work, that we've all been conditioned this way for generations, centuries, and that it is not going to get solved in one town hall or one concert or one post or hashtag that centering and focusing on one group is not uncentering or unfocusing on another. We have this terrible culture that somehow to thrive, there needs to be sacrifice from one side. And what is really interesting about the United States, particularly in this moment, is that the dividing line, people who are most pitted against each other and sort of like represent the two sides of the aisle 
are the people who likely on a, many sort of like metrics around hierarchy of needs are similar. And so you see sort of like where the current president was successful and continues to be successful and rallying people around this idea of making America great again and using all of the textbook racist and xenophobic um, and sexist dog whistles to get people to believe that. And when you like look at it objectively, it's like this dude, this is your guy, this guy. You know, he dodged the draft, right? Like every time he supports the troops, I want you to understand that this man, when his time got called, tucked his tail between his Ivy League legs and went the other direction. And I rem- and the reason that I have that reaction is growing up with the Marine in my household, like draft dodging was a thing that I knew from a very early age was like the worst thing that you can do. And so in this moment, like we all stand to gain from centering on the most marginalized people. This is not a let me take what you have. This is actually like we can accomplish things. And there's a very acute example of that. Uh, there's debate going on right now because of a Wall Street Journal article around quote unquote the myth of racial bias policing. And this woman who wrote the article, her argument was that there is no racial bias in policing. And she pointed to a stat, one data point uh, against a history, volumes of other data. She chose to pick uh, the fact that since 2015, the numbers of unarmed black men and white men killed by the police has decreased from 38 and 32 in 2015, respectively, to, in 2018, nine unarmed black men and 19 unarmed white men were killed by the police in 2018. This reporter chose to look at that fact as one proof that there is no racial bias in policing, and in fact, that white people are more in danger of being killed by the police, inferring that black people who are out here destroying things have no leg to stand on. And in fact, they are the ones to be feared by the police. Instead of looking at that same set of statistics and saying because of what happened in Ferguson, because of the uprising of Black Lives Matter in 2015, perhaps for the first time in history, you saw a dramatic reduction in the number of people killed by the police, not just black people, but also, and to a greater degree, white people. And by centering black lives and saying Black Lives Matter, white people benefited too. And that is the power of this movement. That's wonderful. Now, how do you then, in the context of having a legal background and understanding the justice system, how do you kind of think about police brutality and the violence associated with America? Because, you know, other developed countries don't have the same semblance or the same level of violence that we do. How do we kind of work to kind of fix and reform this idea of police brutality when people are allowed to have guns? Like, what do we do about the the violence associated with what it means to be an American in the context of police brutality, if that makes any sense? If we take a step back and and empower ourselves with deep and radical empathy, we can at least convince ourselves to the degree that we need to, to enter into a productive conversation that it's actually not the individual failings of these police officers who are doing this, that it's the accumulation of lots of different shitty parts of our culture that have been allowed to exist, that have been conditioned into us around masculinity, around the function of the, of the origins of the police, around implicit bias, around racism, around vicarious trauma and the, and the inaccess to mental health of police officers. The fact that the institution has never once sort of adapted to the different realities uh, that exist from the time that it was invented until we understand right now about human beings 
And we can look at that and say, it's your fault. You shouldn't have money. You shouldn't exist. And I deeply and firmly understand and, and in some sense believe that there, there needs to be much less policing and, and non-existent policing in many communities um, and that they have way too much money for their current iteration. If they were spending their money on really intensive and deep ongoing training, if they were spending their money on professional development so that police were adapting to the communities that they were policing in, if they were spending their money on connecting to the community in ways that made the community feel safe and not the other way around, and less money on Humvees and howitzers and flak jackets and helmets, I think that we could have a productive conversation and really like frame police brutality not as the individual failings of police officers, but an understanding that everything that we have in this country, everything that we celebrate, every monument that we have, everything that we cheer and applaud and even what we tell ourselves about the rest of the world is centered around violence. Nothing is created in the United States of America without sustained, brutal, disproportionately affecting marginalized people, violence. And so that to me is the way that we can approach the conversation of empathy and understand that we were bred this way. That's, that's why this is happening. Now we have to unlearn that and move in a different direction. I think that's a wonderful way to kind of frame it. You know, I personally believe that there are about four stages of happiness. One is progress, essentially progressing in the thing that you're working on, having extremely low expectations, cultivating a sense of gratitude. And then this is the last one that speaks directly to your point. It's engagement. It's the idea of actually coming to the table with people and essentially hearing them for what they have to say, hearing them, really hearing them and seeing where their perspective is, where they're coming from. Because given the work that you do, a lot of what you talk about, Adam, is this idea of opportunity. And so how do you then see this idea of nature versus nurture, given your background and all the people that you have prosecuted and the moment in which America is in right now? How do you see nature versus nurture? One of the things that we do as human beings, but particularly as, uh, as all human beings, particularly as Americans, is layer on sort of like this exceptionalism, which doesn't allow us to like ask hard questions about ourselves. And one of those things is like we see ourselves as this really advanced species because we can walk upright and we can talk and we can make Teslas and all this stuff. And really like that only happens because of one part of our brain that grew. And as a species, we are one tick on the evolutionary scale. Like to say that we've made it and that we are the smartest uh, is really irresponsible given how short we've been around. Like this could be all be over in a, a year. And uh, the historians, the aliens, whoever will say that was a very unsuccessful species. That part of our brain removed us from primates that we think about that are in zoos and made us human beings. And all it did was actually just like put a filter on what is our natural inclination to be violent. Primates are the most violent animals in the animal kingdom. They're the most interspecies violent animals. They are violent for lots of reasons that have nothing to do with territory uh, or, or food access. And they're one of the only animal species that exhibits violence in that way. And we love to talk about ourselves as if we start out from this place where we are above that. And what I try to, you know, and this is, this is just me waxing, what I try to get people to think about is like, maybe we start out violent and this thing that we get on the front of our brains to like reduce that violence is the thing that is most important for nurture. Because if we don't take care of that thing, then it's not a long way to go back. And that's why you see 
violence being the manifestation of mental health, violence being the manifestation of unresolved trauma, violence being the manifestation of addiction, things that uh, mess with the wiring of our brain result in the manifestation of violence. Not because I'm an individually bad person, but because that's my natural state. That part of our brain is so susceptible, particularly very, very early on, to harm and permanent harm in ways that we, again, as a, as a new species that knows nothing about our brains, knows very, very little about our brains, uh, we don't know uh, to the extent what corporal punishment does to uh, long-term development. We don't know what isolation or shame or anxiety or hunger or sleep or any of these things do long-term. We have ideas, we have theories, but all of those theories and ideas are if you don't protect that part by giving young people all of those things and if you expose them to trauma, um, you get something on the other side that you don't want. And so I try to, in the best way that I can think of, get people to understand that the manifestation of the act, uh, the manifestation of, of the violence that we see that shapes how people view the criminal justice system, which should happen to people, actually happens when children are babies. And holding that conversation to be that is true, and so is people have personal responsibility and agency that they have to monitor and regulate themselves. But that only can happen if this part of the brain is in the healthiest shape that it can be. And that's where we have lost ourselves. We have not thought about this in, in a way, in a health way, that I think lots of other smart people would encourage us to do so. No, I think that's absolutely right. And, and I've heard you say this before in your talks. And, and, and so this perspective is actually quite unique and necessary. And so, Adam, just to kind of wrap up this conversation, I'd love to ask you one more question. This is something that I ask of all my guests, and uh, and it's this. What is your message for the world? Uh, my message for the world is nobody knows what to do. The worst thing that we can do is nothing. And by nothing, I mean continuing to do what we've always done and to not waste uh, crisis. There is a moment here uh, where we are coming to reckon with our humanity, and we have a choice to pretend like we are sleeping or to be wide awake and allow for ourselves to try something radically different, which is just letting go of all of these ideas that we have been saturated with and start building uh, new ideas about a new paradigm and a new future. Adam Foss, thank you for your time and thank you for the work that you do, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you, my brother. Thank you for joining us on the Stories of Transformation podcast. This podcast is produced by Dana Drahos. Audio engineering by Joe Genjemi. Marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi. And theme music by Kais Esor. If you love Stories of Transformation, you can help more people find us by leaving a review and sharing the episodes far and wide. We're grateful for all your support. And on behalf of the Stories of Transformation team, I'd like to say thank you. Okay, see you next time.